This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Well, thanks for doing the podcast all on your own last week, Tegan. It was fun, Norman, but it wasn't the same without you. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> well, later on in the show, we'll have your questions answered. And the email to send in your questions is healthreport at abc.net.au. Also on the podcast today, a misspent adolescence and your heart later in life. The risks of a major stroke after having, after having the risks of a major stroke after having had a mini transient one, and there is good news about that. We take an inside peek at the manufacturing process for the Astra vaccine in Melbourne. And we thought we'd give you a chance to hear an interview that we did on Coronacast on the 15th of February, which you can go back and listen to in that feed if you want. But if you stay tuned today, you'll hear us speaking with Professor Dominic Dwyer. He's a virologist and runs a huge laboratory service in Sydney that's been significantly focused on COVID testing for the past year. Dominic, when we recorded this podcast, is currently in hotel quarantine after arriving back from being part of a highly controversial WHO mission to China, investigating the origins of SARS-CoV. And here's what he had to say to Tegan and me. The terms of reference and so on were set up back in July. They then selected a team and we started meeting, I think, in around September or October to plan, well, what sort of information would you want to try and sort out the origins of an outbreak? What was happening with those first cases in December and what might have been happening, you know, even in the few weeks before So we came up with a series of questions to ask about and sort of commission the Chinese collaborators to do for when we got there. And then part of the report is generating phase two studies to sort of sort out what will be the long-term ongoing studies to continue to sort out the source of of SARS-CoV-2. So what data did you want and what data did you end up getting? Yeah, there's been a lot of media interest about Chinese not supplying data and all of that sort of thing. And of course, much of that is driven by political agendas in all sorts of different countries. But what we requested was really a review of the surveillance data for a range of diseases. So that included reviewing carefully the Chinese influenza surveillance data. We also wanted to look at mortality and some morbidity data from China, but particularly focusing down into Hubei province and then down into Wuhan, then down into the districts within Wuhan. Remembering Wuhan's a city of 12 million people or so. We also asked them to go back and review through their hospital records what sort of cases might have been like COVID-19 that had appeared before they started notifying in early December 2019. In other words, were there unrecognised cases over the previous couple of months. And then we also had another group looking at the genetics of the viruses that were being sequenced, not just from the patients, but from the environment and from animal products and frozen products and so on, and trying to put all of that together. And then the third part of the study was around the animal origins. What sort of animal testing had they done? What sort of product testing were they doing? Uh, What was that showing? Had they gone back to the farms that supply farmed wildlife and other animals? Was there anything in the illegal wildlife trade that they could tell us about, et cetera, et cetera? So the work fell into those three groups. So you've gone and you've asked for this data. Did you get what you needed to be able to do your job? 
We got an enormous amount of data and I think people have probably focused too much on the data that wasn't supplied. But in fact, the data supplied was enormous. And for example, when we asked them to go back and look at unusual pneumonias and stuff like that in a couple of months before December 2019, you know, they went and reviewed 76,000 medical records in 230-odd health facilities in Wuhan. And it's really quite an extraordinary data collection process. And were there atypical pneumonias? There were, yeah. So they identified around 90-odd cases between October and December 2019 that could have been COVID-like. And then one of their expert committees reviewed them and felt that they weren't COVID-related and also collected blood on them in January this year and tested them for SARS-CoV-2 antibodies, which were all negative. So the assumption is, you know, from their point of view is that these weren't COVID. It's tricky because, for example, antibody tests done on blood after 15 months later, it's hard to know how reliable those sort of tests are, but it certainly showed that there didn't appear to be large numbers of atypical pneumonia cases before they started notifying cases in December. You've been quoted as saying you're disappointed you didn't get the raw data on patient information. I mean, a lot of this does just depend on trust and politics come in here. I mean, it's not as if it's like a nuclear investigative commission going into Iran where you're trying to dig up stuff that people are trying to hide. You, you want trust to be to the fore here and there's not a lot of trust going on. I mean, just what are your observations there, given what you didn't learn and how close you are to finding out where it might have come from? Just one example is it seems to be taken on trust that they didn't escape from the Virology Institute when, in fact, the Virology Institute, which is a very good Virology Institute, was doing gain-of-function tests on coronavirus only a year or two before. That's exactly right. I mean, the issue of trust and cooperation is an important one. And my experience, both with SARS way back and, and this one as well, is that once you start having the meetings directly with your peer group, everyone's kind of on the same length. Yes, there's some complexities about political interference and everybody's got an agenda and that does make it difficult and it makes it particularly difficult for them for the scientists and so on. And the data that we had asked for that seems to have got a lot of airplay was we did say, well, look, you know, you've reported the 174 cases of COVID in December. And we know that half of those had no contact with the Huanan market, the big wet market. So what is it about those 174 that could be teased out further? And so we did ask them, for what we call a line listing of cases of those 174. Yes, we asked for that. They gave us some of it, but not all of it. But we have the opportunity to continue to work with this and to continue to ask for it. What's the hottest theory that you're exploring moving forward? Look, I think the hottest theory is the one about transmission from bat to some sort of intermediate animal, be it a pangolin or a ferret badger or a cat or whatever, into the population. Whether that occurred first at the Huanan market or whether it had occurred beforehand is hard to tell. Now, other things like the laboratory leak and that sort of stuff, look, we questioned the laboratory, went to the laboratory, talked to them about it. Sure, we only got answers to questions we asked rather than doing a forensic examination of the laboratory, but that's not what our purpose was, and that's a completely different set of skills. What was the 
tensest moment and what was the most pleasing moment of the trip? The tensest moments were really around some of the discussions about the interpretation of the data. We had different views on what certain data meant or we wouldn't ascribe reliability to some of the data in the sense that just because your influenza illness surveillance data doesn't tell you that anything was circulating, say, in November or December, doesn't mean that it wasn't. And to be honest, that sort of debate happens in any outbreak anywhere. I think the pleasing part of it was actually the amount of data that the Chinese allowed us to work through with them. I mean, it is a joint mission. And certainly the WHO representatives said they had never seen any of this data before and they were very pleased to see the data they'd got. Look, the work was interesting, fascinating, difficult, complex. I mean, we were doing 15-hour days in different language with a lot of political and other issues swirling around trying to actually just do the science. And I guess that's the way it is, but, but it's not easy. Professor Dominic Dwyer is a virologist and director of the Path West Network in Sydney. Now, most Australians will receive the AstraZeneca vaccine and most of the doses will be manufactured by CSL in Melbourne. Belle Smith, our colleague in the ABC Science Unit in Melbourne, visited the plant last week to find out how it's all coming together and whether other COVID vaccines could be made there as well. I don't want to touch this, but okay. It's a hot, windy day, and I'm navigating layers of security to enter a sprawling area of blocky buildings on Melbourne's northern outskirts. But there's a good reason for all this. I'm entering CSL's Broadmeadows site, which is where most of Australia's COVID vaccines will be made. CSL has taken on the job of churning out 50 million doses of the vaccine, which was developed by the University of Oxford and AstraZeneca. And I'm getting a look behind the scenes at the room in which these vaccines are being grown. Now, CSL hopes to have the first batch ready to roll out to clinics in early March. And while the actual shot in the arm will only take a couple of seconds, the vaccine takes a good three months to make. The hardest part has in some ways been the knowledge that within Australia we're the only manufacturer capable of providing the Australian population with enough vaccines to cover the people we need to cover. And that puts a level of pressure on us to be successful. We're bringing in new processes. We have to get them up and running very quickly. That's Dr Andrew Nash, CSL's Chief Scientific Officer. He's only been in the job for seven months. Good timing, right? But in that space of time, he's overseen the company's shift to COVID vaccines. And the vaccine that CSL is making is known as a viral vector vaccine. The vaccine is a virus, in this case, an adenovirus that usually infects chimpanzees. And it's been engineered to be harmless to us, but contain a special DNA payload. That payload is the blueprint for the spike protein unique to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19. When the vaccine is injected into our arm, the adenovirus slips the DNA into our cells. Our cells then read the DNA and make the spike protein, which triggers an immune response. The adenovirus and DNA are both eventually dismantled by our body's own waste management systems. So how exactly do you make a viral vector vaccine? To find out, we walk up three flights of stairs to a viewing corridor that runs alongside the room where the vaccine is made. 
Technicians and operators fully decked out in protective onesies, masks, hairnets, beard nets where necessary, plus gloves, goggles and gumboots, they bustle about, tending to a vast array of gleaming equipment. Now, we're not allowed inside, but floor-to-ceiling glass gives us an almost unimpeded view of the whole shebang. In essence, this operation takes small amounts of ingredients which were sent over from AstraZeneca in November and cooks them up to make more of them, lots more. So the first three weeks of the 12-week process involves growing an army of cells from a single milliliter to 2,000 litres. These 2,000 litres fill the bioreactor, a stainless steel vat around three metres tall, which stands in the centre of the room. These cells won't be in the final vaccine. Instead, they're hosts for the adenovirus. So once the adenovirus is added to the cells in the bioreactor, they infect those cells, multiply, bust out, and go on to infect more cells. But in their wake, the amount of adenovirus dramatically increases. After almost a week of this, the vaccine is filtered out of that soup, frozen and sent to a different Melbourne site to be mixed up, tested and packaged into 10-dose vials. To meet demand, the vaccine production line has been working 24-7 since November. Each batch ends up being around 300,000 doses of the vaccine, and CSL intends to crank out more than a million doses a week. And this isn't even the first COVID vaccine CSL has made. You'll recall that originally we were engaged with the University of Queensland and CEPI to manufacture their vaccine. And that, in fact, is a a different technology from the AstraZeneca vaccine. It uses a recombinant spike protein. So that type of technology is very compatible with what we do here at CSL. So that was an easy thing for us to contemplate. The AstraZeneca vaccine came along. Um, This facility can be relatively easily adapted to do the drug substance part of the AstraZeneca vaccine. So we're able to pivot when we stop the UQ vaccine production. How easy or hard would it be for you to do an mRNA vaccine? Look, yes, if we wanted to, we could do that. You know, we have an interest in the mRNA vaccines. We've been watching the development and very pleased to see the way that they've been working. You know, in our own research programs, we have some early work on those types of vaccines. Down the track, uh, CSL or perhaps someone else, I'm sure we'll eventually end up with messenger RNA vaccine capacity here in Australia. I know that the federal government's very interested in it and there's certainly a lot of discussion going on at the moment. In terms of the AstraZeneca vaccine, we've seen some data come out recently showing efficacies against various variants. How easy would it be for you to start making booster shots that will cover these variants that are emerging? So it's interesting. I think the the main variant that seems to be of concern at the moment is the South African variant. The UK variant seems to be pretty well covered by the current vaccines. The South African variant has has that same mutation as the UK variant plus a couple of others. There's some very early initial data that the AstraZeneca vaccine might not be so effective. I think we really need to wait and see what you know the full data set looks like before we draw too many conclusions. From a, an adenovirus-based vaccine perspective, I guess that would be a decision by AstraZeneca as to whether they thought uh, developing a follow-on adeno-based vaccine to cover that variant would be a useful way to go. If they did and the evidence supported the use of that vaccine, then we may very well uh, end up manufacturing it here. The way this facility is set up, you know, you can only have one production run going at a time. So if we were making that variant vaccine, that's a vaccine we'd be making. Bell Smith was talking to Dr Andrew Nash, CSL's Chief Scientific Officer based in Melbourne. This is RN's Health Report and I'm Norman Swan. 
A transient ischemic attack is, well, why am I explaining it when I've got an expert on the line? Mark Parsons is Professor of Neurology at the University of New South Wales and authority, an authority on stroke. Welcome back to the Health Report, Mark. Thanks, Norman. So why don't you explain what a transient ischemic attack is? Sure, okay. So it's when the blood supply to your brain is blocked temporarily, usually by a small clot coming from elsewhere in the body. Um, and the signs that you get are the same as for a stroke, but they disappear usually within a few minutes to hours. Uh, and and the, the, the classical signs, if you remember, are the, similar to the stroke foundation warning fast face arm speech. So if you have weakness of face or arm or disturbed speech, that's usually a, a marker of, of a stroke. Uh, if the symptoms are very short, then we call it a, a TIA. But I guess the main thing to point out is that it's not a minor, some people call it a minor stroke, but it actually is a, is a significant risk factor for going on and developing a major blockage and, and permanent disability from a stroke. Which is why I've got you on, because there's been a recently published study involving, I mean, it's enormous, 366,000 yeah. person years of follow-up, <laughs> looking at the risks of a full-blown stroke after a transient ischemic attack. And they've done it over three time periods, like three cohorts, mm. people yeah. between 1954 and 1985, 1986 and 1999, and 2000 to 2017, comparing people who'd had a TIA with people who hadn't. Um, have I described that remotely correctly? I think pretty correctly, Norman. So, so people might have heard of this study before. It's a very large study called the Framingham Heart Study, which is a, a smallish town near Boston in, in America. And, and they followed up three generations of people that live in that town, roughly 15,000 people uh, over an average of eight to 10 years. So so many, many um Many, many years of follow-up. Uh, so in, in, in this particular study, they looked at um, whether people that had a TIA had a higher risk of stroke in the long term. And what did they find? Well, they found that, that if, you, if you had a TIA during the period of the study follow-up, your risk of having a subsequent stroke was increased by four times. And in fact, um, if you look at it another way, uh, every, every one in a thousand patient years... Um, uh, there was a stroke or one in 12 patients roughly uh, had a, or people had a stroke. But buried in that was a change because your risk oh. of a stroke was higher in the 1950s yeah. than it was totally. in the 2000s. Yeah, so there were two really fascinating findings. The first, which we sort of already knew, but this study was much larger and confirmed that if you have a TIA or a transient ischemic attack, your risk of having a, a major stroke is actually highest in the first seven days, so 20% had a stroke in the first oh, seven really? days. really? As quickly as that? Yeah. Yes. So that's why it's an emergency. Um, but having said that, they also found that f nearly 50% of people had a stroke more than a year after their 2AA. So it, mean, it means that long-term surveillance is needed. Um, and then the second major finding, which you mentioned, is that the risk of stroke dropped off over the, the 50 or well, no, 70 years of the study. So so um, pre-1986, uh, the risk of uh, having a, a stroke was uh, a, TI, a stroke after TIA was 17%, then it dropped to 11% up to 2000, and then after the year 2000 up to the present, it was 6%. And what's that due to? Aspirin, blood pressure control, we, what? Yeah, stopping smoking? All of the above. We think it is much, much better knowledge about the risk factors, so particularly... Uh, better treatment of the uh, high blood pressure, 
smoking, uh, more use of blood thinning with aspirin, uh, uh, cholesterol-lowering medication and I guess probably better exercise as well, although that's not entirely clear. So what happens, What should happen to you if you get a transient ischemic attack? Obviously, if you have a stroke and it's due to a clot, you get a mm. clot buster or you yes. extract the clot, which is what you and I have spoken about before. Mm. But what, what happens if you get a transient ischemic attack? What's the right way to go? Yeah, it's a really good question, Norman. So there's a lot of debate in the medical or neurological community about whether people uh, should be managed uh, acutely in a hospital or they should be seen in what we call a, a rapid response TIA clinic. Well, I mean, I if you're going to have a stroke in seven days, you want to get onto it. <laughs> exactly. So so um, some centres do have a very rapid uh, referral service where you can be seen in a clinic within several days of a, of a, of a TIA, but, you, but you're probably right that uh, certainly if the symptoms persist long enough for you to, to dial triple O, then you you really you really should be going to hospital in an ambulance. And so, what what's the role of so obviously aspirin's one thing that you give, you know, obviously control blood pressure. Is there any role for more you know, serious anticoagulation? It depends on the cause of the clot. So that yeah, so the, the TIA is caused by a clot. Um, so if, if the clot's coming from the heart, then then for example, particularly if you've got an irregular heartbeat called atrial fibrillation, then we use different uh, blood thinners uh, to aspirin. Uh, used to be warfarin, but now some of the newer oral anticoagulants. So, yeah, the treatment's quite different depending on the cause. And so you want, an, why, so you want, yeah, an, so you want an ultrasound of the heart, an echocardiogram. Yes. And there was a trend for a while to do carotid ultrasound to see if you had a clot in the neck that, that needed to be removed. Is that yes. still the case? We, or carotid imaging. So now um, we probably do more CT, CT angiography of the carotid. So you, you give some intravenous contrast and scan with a CT scan. And if you've got a high-grade carotid stenosis, we call that a hot carotid. And that means very high risk of, of a subsequent stroke in the next several days. So that, that often requires surgery, in fact. So what you just so really what you're saying is you've got a TIA, you don't mess around, you Absolutely. get into hospital and you expect active treatment. Demand it. Yes. You should. Thump the table. If you yeah, because your your movement will come back and you will be able to thump the table. Mark, thank you for uh, joining. I'm, not, I'm joking, it's not a joke. Mark, yeah. thanks for joining us again. Thanks, Norman. Mark Parsons is Professor of Neurology at the University of New South Wales. By the way, we've got references to these papers uh, on the Health Report website if you want to get more information. There's been another long-term follow-up study, this, this time involving three cohorts of young people in Finland for nearly 30 years, looking at the influence of what's called non-HDL cholesterol <coughs> pardon me, at various ages and the chances of showing the signs of atherosclerosis in the coronary arteries in mid-adulthood, that's around the age of 40. Although it was a Finnish study, the lead author was Dr Matthew Armstrong of the Menzies Institute for Medical Research at the University of Tasmania. Welcome to the Health Report, Matthew. Hi, thank you for having me. What's non-HDL cholesterol? Yeah, so we have um, obviously various measures of cholesterol. We have your total cholesterol and um, what I think a lot of people would know as good and bad cholesterol. So your good being HDL and then your bad being LDL cholesterol. Um, but we have also what we call non-HDL, so everything that's not the good cholesterol. So it's all the bad cholesterols effectively. So let's say you've got a cholesterol of 5 and an HDL of 1, then essentially your non-HDL is 4 or something like that. Yes. And, and you yeah. don't bother defining it into LDL or what have you, but LDL is buried in there. 
Yeah, LDL is a major component of the, of the non-HDL cholesterol. So tell us about what you found in this study when you followed uh, these people through at various ages from adolescence. Yeah, so uh, so obviously these people are the, the same people that we followed up over 28 years. Um, and we found that um, in general, um, non-HDL exposure to non-HDL cholesterol across the life course um, was associated with uh, what we call coronary artery calcium. Um, so this is just uh, calcium buildup in the coronary arteries. These are the arteries that feed the heart. Um, and we found that at different life stages, there's a, a similar association between non-HDL uh, cholesterol and coronary artery calcium. So this sort of suggests that all life stages um, have a, are important for the development of coronary artery calcium uh, in later life. And just before we go on, how valid is coronary calcium as a measure of atherosclerosis? I had a, an, eminent international, an internationally eminent cardiologist on just before Christmas saying he never does coronary calcium scores. Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a good question. Um, you know, we have uh, measures of uh, like clotted plaque and that sort of thing. Uh, as it goes, I think coronary artery calcium is, is quite, um, quite a good measure of, um, of disease in the coronary arteries. Um, you know, we really want an idea of um, uh, like a surrogate marker of heart disease. It's not really used all that much in clinical practice, but in research, it's being used more and more because it's quite a robust um, uh, surrogate, like a preclinical marker of uh, heart disease. So even though you're 40, it pr- predicts an increased risk later in life. Yeah. So but you showed that the um, that adolescents had the, the you know, raised non-HDL cholesterol in adolescence was disproportionately large in terms of its effect on coronary calcium at the age of 40. Yeah, so I, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, we showed that in adolescence, I, I will say that, you know, though we, we showed that adolescents had a stronger association, uh, cholesterol in adolescents had a stronger association with coronary artery calcium, it was, you know, it was still similar across the life stages. So we're talking about um, a few percent um, more stronger association um, compared to the other later life stages. Now, going back to the interview I just did with Mark Parsons, I mean, there are other factors here. There's blood pressure, um, yep. there's poverty, there's education, there's smoking, there's drug use, there's lack of exercise. How do you know that it was non-HDL and not some other factor in these young people's lives that was increasing the risk of atherosclerosis? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. You know, we, in, in our analyses, we did our best to adjust for as much as we can. You know, we adjust for things like BMI, smoking status. But, you know, there are, um, you know, potential residual confounding and also um, things such as physical activity and diet, which we didn't take into account in our analyses. So certainly there is uh, also lifestyle factors that we didn't account for, which may be having an influence. Now, we've known for a while, I mean, I think that during the Vietnam War when they did post-mortems yes. on soldiers who died in their 20s, they, also, they could see streaks and plaque in their coronary arteries. They've found it in post-mortems of young people who've been killed in car accidents. So we've known for yes. a while that adolescence and what happens in childhood is important later in life. What's new about this in terms of parents might be listening or even adolescents? We have a huge adolescent audience on the health, the health forum. Yeah, so I think, so, you know, just going back to the, the autopsy studies, you know, they've shown coronary artery calcium as young as two years of age, so this starts really early. Um, 
I'll say, you know, so previous studies, a lot of them have focused just on one time period. So, for example, they looked at, you know, early life cholesterol levels on future risk. And then maybe another study looked at later life cholesterol uh, cholesterol levels on risk. Um, and so we've looked at all uh, like three different life stages um, and shown the relative importance of each life so, stage. So does this mean that cholesterol should be done earlier in life or that parents should just be much more attentive to diet? And lifestyle. Yeah, this is a very tricky question. You know, we do want to overstate our findings here. Um, I think our, our findings in general bolster the idea that leading a healthy lifestyle and maintaining a healthy lifestyle throughout all ages is important. Um, so, yeah. And what happens next with your study? Yeah, so I think next we'll be moving on. You know, like you mentioned before, there's other risk factors such as uh, blood pressure. And, uh, you know, that's certainly on the cards for looking at um, how this might affect um, the risk of coronary artery calcium in later life as well. And you'll have to dust up on your finish. Yes, I will. <laughs> yeah, well, must be another story why you were doing this study. But thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Matthew Armstrong of the Menzies Institute for Medical Research at the University of Tasmania. Another interesting story there, and um, hopefully not something else that you've got to worry about with adolescent <laughs> children, but you know, there, there we go. It is interesting. I don't think I realised that signal could be there so early. Yeah, no, it's, it, it has been a worry. So for a anyway, vast no, adolescent <laughs> audience, for anybody who's you know under 65 listening to us, you know, just watch your... I think you're selling our, our audience short, Norman. But anyway, I've been lugging this mailbag around. I think it's time to open it up and shoot some questions at you. Yeah, and just a reminder, the uh, email for these questions is healthreport at abc.net.au. So the first question today is from Tony. So he's referring to the HPV vaccine, human papillomavirus. The virus is a big cause of cervical cancer in women. But Tony's asking, should men also have the HPV vaccination? So it's also a cause of oral cancer, oropharyngeal cancer. It's also a cause of anal cancer, possibly a cause of esophageal cancer. So there's a range of cancers that could be human papillomavirus related, and those would be independent of, of uh, gender, although anal Cancer might well be more biased towards men, but that's another one. Well, it's not another story. It's part of the story. So, should men have the HPV uh, vaccination? The current recommendations in Australia are. So, let, let me just go back a little bit so to set the, set the scene. Initially, it was seen as um, immunisation just for young women, particularly adolescent girls, before they were sexually active so that they were protected against the, the more significant strains of human papillomavirus and therefore a significant reduction in the risk of uh, cervical cancer. The problem here, and it's similar with uh, the uh, rubella vaccine. So the rubella vaccine was given to, was a design for you know, adolescent women, adolescent girls, so that when they entered sexual activity and were running the risk of becoming pregnant, they were protected against rubella, which has, is a dreadful infection to get when you're pregnant. The problem is that when you only immunised girls, boys could pass, you know, basically boys could pass the infection as well. And what they found to really get rubella down herd immunity is part mm -hmm. of the story here. They immunise boys against them. Boys got the MMR immunisation as well as girls. And that's what they've ended up doing with HPV because you don't want boys who basically transmit the HPV to women um, in sexual intercourse 
to be passing it on, so you immunise boys as well. So also men who have sex with men, they are at risk of HPV as well. So the group that needs to be immunised because they're at high risk of HPV, and unlike women, where women get HPV early and their risk of HPV later in life goes down, men tend to acquire HPV fairly steadily through life. So if men who have sex with men have not been previously vaccinated, they should be vaccinated against HPV. Um, obviously, as more and more boys come through the cohorts of boys being immunised, um, those who are gay will be protected. But if you haven't been vaccinated and you're a man who has sex with men, then you should be immunised because there is this risk of anal cancer and oral cancers and uh, you want to reduce that. Otherwise, the recommendation is for adolescents between 9 and 18 to get two doses of the HPV vaccine. If you're immunocompromised for any reason, then you should be having three doses. But cancer is obviously a really significant outcome of HPV, but it's not the only outcome. There are other mild symptoms that people might want to avoid as well. Yes, well, if you, when you're talking about warts. Yeah. yeah. Well, most people who have warts would not describe them probably as mild. It's, uh, you know, it's they're disfiguring and Mm-hmm. and so on, and you you just don't want to be somebody who transmits um, a preventable infection to others. Well, there you have it. And we've got Rosalind asking, what's the latest on restless legs? It's driving me nuts every night. Yes. So restless leg syndrome is a neurological problem. It's a movement disorder. It's also, a, also some people would argue that it's actually a sleep disorder, not just because it disturbs your sleep, and it just certainly disturbs the sleep of your partner, but, but also it's often accompanied by sleep problems. And what it is, and it's quite common, um, it's just a, this a very hard to control urge to move your legs, which can, but not always, be accompanied with really uncomfortable, unpleasant sensations in the, in the legs. It, it usually is made worse. It comes on when you're resting your legs. It doesn't necessarily have to happen when you're asleep or when you're lying down or sitting, you can be watching the telly. One of the things that's typical about it is if you get up and move around or move your legs, it tends to relieve the the symptoms and the restlessness, usually worse in the evening or at night, but that's when you tend to lie down. You're often at night, but most of the patients, when you're in sleep, there seems to be regular sort of beating motions of particularly the feet coming up um, every 20 or 40 seconds during sleep. But you, you feel tired during the day. It really is disturbing and affects your lifestyle. Now, Most of the people who get uh, restless leg syndrome, it's what's called idiopathic. Nobody really knows why you get it. It's probably genetic, uh, at least in some people. It tends to run in families, but it also can be secondary. In other words, there can be other causes of it. You can have a low blood iron level. You can have kidney problems. You can have diabetes. You can have thyroid problems. And there are some drugs that can um, actually make this worse or bring it on. So the answer to um, Rosalind's question is, is there anything new? Um, The short answer to that question is no. But if you do go to people who are expert in this area, they've actually got a lot of things that can help. You know, there are drugs that, dopaminergic agents, drugs that affect the dopamine system in your brain. Sometimes Valium-like drugs, there's one called clonazepam that can help a bit. Anticonvulsants that have a paradoxical effect, similar ones, some of the similar ones to help with pain can help here. And also sleep hygiene, avoiding, if you notice that coffee or alcohol, smoking can make this worse, you know, and changing your lifestyle. 
as I say, avoiding certain drugs. Some antidepressants can actually bring this on. Exercise is really good. Um, a hot or cold bath uh, can can actually help too. So you've got to play around with that. Um, but it, it is it isn't easy, and there is no magical new treatment on the board as far as I can see at the moment. No doubt, um, people will write in. It sounds like Rosalind's really struggling with restless leg syndrome and I empathise because I had it with my pregnancies and it, it, for some people it comes and then it goes away after pregnancy. But I was wondering, Norman, it's, a, it's enough of a pain as it is already, but do you know if it's ever a signal of an underlying disorder? Can it be used as a diagnostic tool for anything more significant than simply restless legs? Yes, no, it, it can be and there can be kidney problems and so on. You just need a full workup to see what's going on. So diabetes, as I said, uh, rheumatoid, autoimmune diseases can bring it on, such as rheumatoid arthritis, Sjorgen syndrome, which is dryness of the eye, dryness of the mouth, vitamin B12 deficiency. Um, if you've been giving blood donations too often, then the low iron can actually cause that too. So yes, there, you need to have a full workup um, by your GP or by a, a general physician to actually look at this. So last week on The Health Report, Norman, while you were taking a very well-earned rest, we had a, a story about the importance of reducing sodium in processed foods to improve everyone's health. And John has written in about this. And John says most dietary guidelines recommend less salt for everyone. But he's seen some recent systematic reviews, including from the Cochrane, which have assessed randomised trials and found that it only makes sense to reduce salt if people have hypertension. And in some of the studies, maybe doesn't make a difference at all. So John's wondering whether he should trust these studies or whether there may be a red herring, a salt-free red herring. Well, let's just pull back. There's a few things going on there um, in this conversation. So for any public health measure, there's a question about whether or not you target the whole population or you target people at highest risk. So there's no question that salt reduction will reduce your blood pressure. So then do you just, so imagine a statistical distribution curve, you know, the bell-shaped curve, let's get yes. that in people's minds. So you've got the bell-shaped curve, which would be the risks of, say, heart attack, stroke, gastric cancer in amongst this, which are the things associated with salt intake relative, because of blood pressure and also the direct effects of salt. Now, just imagine, look at the tail on the right-hand side. So that's the people with really high blood pressure who are really high at risk. That's not the majority of people in the bell curve. Now, the bell curve in Australia, for all these things, is too far to the right. If you compare us to low-salt countries where the blood pressure is much lower, they, and there are other reasons for this as well, they have less heart disease, they have less stroke, and their blood pressure is much, much lower. Our blood pressure, what we call a normal blood pressure in Australia, by the standards of the Yamamamo Indians in South America, is actually really high. Right. And so what people talk about here is you want to shift the whole bell curve to the left. It was a Professor Jeffrey Rose at the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine that talked about this. And what he also talks about, which is the psychological part, is that every distribution curve denies its tail. In other words, when you ask people, do you drive fast? No, I don't drive fast. Do you drink too much alcohol? No, I don't drink too much alcohol. Are you too fat? No, I'm not too fat. In other words, nobody likes to be in the tail. We all think that we're in the middle. And this applies to salt as well. 
is that you want to actually move the whole distribution curve of salt intake to the left. And that will mean that even if you've got normal blood pressure, your blood pressure will come down. Um, but it's true, the people who will benefit most are those who are at, are at highest risk. But those who are at highest risk don't necessarily know they're at highest risk. So the cost of doing this, it's often the food industry that fights back against this one. And the reason they do is that salt makes processed foods very attractive and very nice. And you don't want to reduce it because people will stop buying bread and, mm. uh, and, and what have you. But um, the key here is that if you eat less, uh, smaller portions, um, and keep your weight down, you, you will actually reduce your salt intake because you're eating less salt in your diet. If you eat less processed foods and you're careful about what you put in your cooking, you will actually also reduce your salt. So there's things that you can actually do that are good for you for other reasons as well. And you can trade what are called systematic reviews here. So you can look at... There are a lot of studies in salt that are not very well performed, very hard to measure. You've got to do lots of urine tests on people and gather urine for 24 hours. But a, a study last year published in the British Medical Journal, 133 studies, 12, over 12,000 people, showed that there was a significant benefit um, in terms of salt reduction. Um, but yes, it was greatest in people at highest risk. And so to our next question from Anne Norman, she has an autoimmune disease. And while we don't usually like to give people individual medical advice on this show because they need to speak to their own doctor, Anne's real question is, what are autoimmune diseases and why do they never go away? Well, what um, Anne has is a condition called lichen planus, which there's some debate as to whether that is truly an autoimmune disease because it can actually, lichen planus can actually go away. And this is plaques in, in the gum and in the mouth, it, really annoying. Um, you get a process where, the, where the, the cells inside the mouth actually go through programmed cell death. There are parts of the immune system involved and it's not that easy to treat. It comes and goes and some people it does go away altogether. And you know, you've got to have very careful dental care where you, where you have a minimum of friction inside the mouth um, and there are treatments which, which can help. So, Tegan, um, just to remind myself, because I've rabbled on here, Anne <laughs> wants to know about autoimmune diseases. So the, the trouble is lichen planus is not a great example of an autoimmune disease. So a typical autoimmune disease is one where there's a trigger. Often you don't know what that trigger is, but it's a viral infection of some kind. The body reacts to that viral infection and it's somehow the immunology or the, what's called the antigen, the thing in the virus that provokes the immune response is similar to another part of the body and you get it in your joints, for example, with well, the lining of your joints and it's rheumatoid arthritis. If it's to the, the lining of the nerves in your brain and spinal cord, it's, it's multiple sclerosis. Um, there's others as well, systemic lupus erythematosus, which you know, particularly affects the kidneys and so on. So there's a variety of uh, diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease affecting the insulin-producing cells. So the immune system is targeted against certain cells in the body. And there is different treatments for different autoimmune diseases. So, for example, multiple sclerosis is now curable. There are amazing treatments that actually do attack the very specific immune cells targeted against the lining of the brain. There aren't great treatments yet for type 1, and lichen planus, um, the one, the disease that uh, Anne has, as I said before, is questionable that it's an autoimmune disease. It probably is, and but there have not been really good trials 
in this to find out what works best. So steroids tend to be used a lot. So speaking of autoimmune diseases, Kate's written in asking about COVID vaccines. And so she says she knows that a lot of COVID vaccines use something called an adjuvant to basically stimulate the immune system to create an immune response against the virus itself. And she's got a question about how, let's say she's 70 kilos and someone's 130 kilos. How does one vaccine delivery not perhaps overstimulate a smaller body um, or understimulate a larger one? That's uh, a really good question. And, sh- and uh, Kate's also asked about uh, adjuvants, which go along with, which stimulate the immune system, and whether they could make autoimmune diseases, talking about our previous questioner, um, uh, worse. So first of all, it's a really good question about the dose of the vaccine. And um, the problem with the COVID-19 trial, vaccine trials is that normally it's the phase two study, the middle study, that determines the right dose on average. And you're right, there probably uh, could be an effect of a vaccine where, you've just, where it distributes into the body when you've got a very big body and it might be less effective, but it's not been well researched in, that, in those terms. And what they find with these trials is the average dose that works best on average. Now, with influenza vaccine, for example, um, they show that with people who are elderly and don't have a strong immune system, you've got to give a bigger dose or a stronger form of the vaccine. The answer is people actually don't know. It's a very sensible question, but it's on average they they test the dose. Now, what's happened with the COVID-19 vaccines is to telescope these trials to actually get them the results very quickly, they've often shortened the phase two part of the study or included it with the phase three study or the phase one study. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that the Astra vaccine trial has been a bit of a dog's breakfast because they've they've kept on adjusting it uh, according to their previous findings. That's where the dose issue has come in. You're half a dose followed by a full one, maybe a dose that uh, you first dose and then you wait three months and you get a 90% effectiveness rather than waiting four weeks and you get a 62% effectiveness. And you and I are talking about this before the TGA has approved the Astra vaccine, um, where they may well um, approve a longer gap with the Astra vaccine to get a better effect. That's the story about dosage. It's a very sensible question, Kate. The story about adjuvants, so these are the substances that go with almost every vaccine, apart from some of the COVID vaccines, to stimulate the immune system to make the antigen, the bit of the virus, work better. All vaccines until recently have got adjuvants attached, and you're worried about whether that stimulates an autoimmune reaction. There's not much evidence of that. However... Cutting to the chase, there's no adjuvant, as far as I'm aware, there's no adjuvant with the mRNA vaccines. There are substances that go along with it to preserve it, but that's mainly getting the mRNA into the cell. The viral vector vaccines are similar, so 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 we're talking about Pfizer and Moderna, the mRNA vaccines, and Astra and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines are are viral vectors that go into the cell. And I'm not sure, I don't... I don't think I could be wrong, but um, I don't think they have adjuvants. If they do, they're not a major part of the story. And um, the one that does have an adjuvant that's coming down the pike is the Novavax vaccine. So that's a protein vaccine that goes straight into the body. It's the spike protein. And they've got a very fancy adjuvant, which which Kate knows all about, made of nanoparticles. And that's supposed to be very strong there. But I don't think they've found any problem in terms of side effects. And in fact, we tested in Australia the safety of that nanoparticle 
adjuvant by itself without the SARS-CoV-2 spike on it, and it seemed to be pretty safe. So after I've spoken long enough, I think that's it for questions for this week, don't you think, Tegan? That's right. But if you want to send in a question, dear listener, you can email us healthreport at abc.net.au. And if you would like to leave us a review, we would love it if you did on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So be cruel or kind. We'd like to hear from you no matter what. That's right. We'll see you next time. Bye till then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.